Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When the Lord Jesus came, he came to save the entire world. And what I mean by saving the entire world is that he did not just come to save the Jews, he came to save the Jews and the Gentiles. He came to save those who were part of the nation of Israel and those who were not part of the nation of Israel. The word Gentiles means other nations. That's what that word means, that it's the nation of Israel and the other nations. And so when the Lord Jesus came, he came to provide salvation for the entire world, not just the Jews, but also for those who were non-Jews. The gospel, the gospel message of the forgiveness of sins and the restoration of life does not require anyone to be of a particular national identity, does not require anyone to be a part of some specific religious group, does not require any of that. Now, he chose the nation of Israel, he chose the Jewish people, in order to present salvation to the entire world. But that was just the process by which he provided salvation. That doesn't mean that it was necessary. That just means that that was what he chose to do. That was what he decided to do in order to accomplish salvation and present that to the entire world. And so when we look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus, his ministry was to the Jewish people. Yes, that is correct. However, The purpose of his ministry was not just to reach out to the Jewish people, but it was also to reach out to the Gentile people. And we do have an example of him going to the Gentiles. We have an explicit example of this found in the scriptures that is described as the healing of the Gadarene or the Gerasene, depending upon the translation that you use. There are different names for these people. I'm going to refer to them as the Gadarenes, however, just in order to make it simple. Jesus went to go to the Gadarenes, and when he went there, we have evidence to show that they definitely were Gentiles, that they were not Jews, or at least they were not living like Jews, because there were pig herders there. And if there were pig herders there, then that means that they were eating pigs in the local community. That gives us a good indication that these were the Gentiles. Now, before he went to go and speak with the Gadarenes and provide a healing for the people there, before he did that, he was officially rejected by the nation of Israel. This was described in Matthew chapter 12, and I explained this official rejection in the first message that I did in the series Accounting for the Three Days and Three Nights. It was in this series, in the first program, that I explained this official rejection of the nation of Israel. It was after he had performed the miracle of healing the man who was both blind and mute. He could not hear, he could not speak, and he could not see. That There was no way to communicate with him. He was possessed by a demon, and the Lord Jesus cast this demon out of him. When he cast the demon out of this man, the people officially rejected him by declaring that he had performed this miracle by the power of the prince of demons. And because of that, he said that no more signs would be given to the nation of Israel in order to assert his messianic claim, in order to assert his claim that he was the Messiah. He would no longer perform 
any miracles for that purpose except one more miracle, and that was the miracle of being in the grave for three days and three nights, and then he would raise from the dead. This was described in Matthew chapter 12, between verses 22 and verse 50, the end of the chapter. In verse 40, the Lord Jesus said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, the significance of the miracle that he had performed in verse 20, that is Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, was that it was a miracle that the Pharisees claimed only the Messiah could perform. According to the beliefs of the Pharisees, only the Messiah could have cast the demon out of a man who could not hear, speak, or see. The reason why was because their procedure to cast out a demon was a simple procedure. The procedure was that you had to first establish communication with the demon, identify the demon's name, and then, through using the demon's name, you could declare and demand that the demon leave, depart from the individual. That was the Pharisee's procedure to cast out a demon. If a person cannot see, speak, or hear, then there was no way to establish communication with the demon through the individual to be able to identify his name and then demand that he leave. There was no way that that could be accomplished according to their theology. And so they made the claim that only the Messiah would be able to cast this demon out. That was what I was explaining in the first program in the series on the three days and three nights. But in this program, I would like to take it a step further beyond this event and show you what happens after Jesus performed that miracle and made the claim that he would no longer perform any miracles to assert his messianic identity. Now, the chronology in the scriptures can be very difficult to follow without a harmony of the Gospels. But if you were to look at a harmony of the Gospels, you would know that the next event after this was the event of Jesus crossing the Galilee and going to the region of the Gadarenes, also known as the region of the Gerasenes. He goes to these people immediately after he prophesied that he would be in the grave for three days and three nights, and that that would be the last sign shown. So immediately after the official rejection of the nation of Israel as a people, immediately after that, he goes to the Gentiles. Now, this is a very important foreshadowing, and that is that the nation of Israel would not receive the Messiah The nation of Israel, for the most part, would not receive the Messiah. Of course, some people who were in the nation of Israel did receive the Messiah for who he is, and they were saved, and they began the process of spreading the gospel out into the Gentile world. That certainly happened. However, this is a foreshadowing to show that the nation as a whole would reject the gospel even after Jesus died and rose from the dead, that the gospel message would still go out to the Gentiles, to the rest of the people. Because again, Jesus did not come just to save Israel. He came to save the entire world. And so when Jesus leaves Israel and goes out into the Gentile world, this to me is a foreshadowing of the things that would come in the future. He goes across the Galilee, and when he goes across the Galilee, he speaks with the Gerasenes, and I'm going to read from the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke beginning in chapter 8, verse 26. This is Luke 8:26, where it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, 
Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Okay, so Jesus goes and the demon identifies him for who he is because Jesus demanded that he depart from within the man, from within the Gentile man. Now, in the other accounts that we have in Mark and also in Matthew, we also know that the demon claimed that Jesus was going to cast him out before an appointed time. The demon made the claim that Jesus had no business being there, and he also made the claim that Jesus was going to cast him out or he was going to torment him before an appointed time. Now, what was this appointed time that he was talking about? Well, he didn't say, and so we don't know for certain. I personally believe the appointed time can be only one of two possibilities. The first possibility is the end of time, when the final judgment is given and the demons are cast into the lake of fire, that that is one possibility. The other possibility is that the demons knew that the Lord Jesus was coming to provide salvation, and yet salvation had not yet been accomplished for the world. The demons would know if the Messiah was coming to provide for salvation, that eventually the message of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit would go out into the Gentile world, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the people would cast out demons who were tormenting other people. And so the demon could be referring to the time right after the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. He could have been referring to that time and not necessarily the time of the end when the final judgment would take place and the earth would be destroyed, the demons would be cast into hell, that kind of final judgment. However, it is my personal opinion that the demon is referring to the time after the resurrection, not the final judgment. That's just my personal opinion. But either way, it's important to recognize that Jesus was there. He was there, and he was going to cast out this demon at a time when the demons did not expect the Messiah to do so. And so regardless of what the demon thinks about the appointed time, Regardless of what the demons believe, it doesn't matter because the living God can intervene and do things like this whenever he wants. So that's why I don't want to spend a whole lot of time speculating on when this appointed time might be, because it doesn't matter. Obviously, it doesn't matter right here. And so because of that, I don't think that we should be preoccupied with that particular issue or concern. Now, the Lord Jesus did not follow the Pharisaical model of casting out a demon when he was on the other side of the Galilee in the Jewish world. However, when he crosses the Galilee and goes into the Gentile world, here we have an example of him following the procedure. Now, it doesn't mean that he needed to follow the procedure. That's important for you to understand. He did not need to follow the procedure. Even though the demons refused to leave right away and he asked them what their name was, even though he did that, and then he followed up the request for their name by casting the demons out. Even though it appears that he is following the rabbinical model for casting out a demon, that doesn't mean it would be required. We have to be careful with this. First of all, we have the evidence to show in Matthew chapter 12 that he did not need to follow the rabbinical procedure. However, we also have the evidence found in Luke chapter 8 in this example where he does follow the procedure. Beginning in verse 30, it says, And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, there was a herd of swine feeding 
there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And then I'll continue in verse 33 in just a moment. But before I do that, I'd like to show you that certainly Jesus did apparently follow the rabbinical model for casting out a demon, but I don't think that that was necessary. Also, the demons knew and expected that there would be a time when the Messiah would come and cast them out. And considering that, I think they could anticipate that his believers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would also cast them out. That these are a couple of points that I wanted to mention concerning this circumstance. But there are a few other things that are important about this miracle and what Jesus did that I would really like to explain. The first thing is, is that there is a claim concerning his messianic identity. Now, he just declared on the other side of the Galilee that he was no longer going to perform miracles in order to assert his messianic claim. We know that. But then he goes across the Galilee and goes into the Gentile world, and he is now going to perform this miracle. The demons are not cast out until there is a clear understanding that Jesus is asserting himself as the Messiah. Now, there is a serious problem with this, and that is that Jesus claimed earlier that he would no longer perform miracles in order to assert his messianic identity. In fact, I did a program on the healing of the Canaanite, which happened shortly after this, where the Lord Jesus was in a situation where the Canaanite woman had asked him to heal her daughter by casting out a demon from within her, and she made this request on the basis of him being the Messiah. He refused to perform that miracle on the basis of him being the Messiah, He did perform the miracle when she asked him to do so just out of her personal desire, out of her personal need to have her daughter healed, and then he performed the miracle. In this case, there is recognition that he is the Messiah, and so why would he follow through with this miracle? Why would he cast out this demon when it would be obvious that he would be doing so on the basis of him being the Messiah? This is a very important point. And I wanted to bring this out because in the context of him refusing to perform any more miracles to assert his messianic claim, why is he now performing a miracle that is going to assert his messianic claim? Well, you could make it simple and say that he's doing this in the Gentile world, not in the nation of Israel. That's a simple way of looking at it. I personally don't like that. I would prefer to mention that this is a demon that is identifying him as the Messiah, And because this is a demon who is identifying him as the Messiah, I don't think that they were included in the context of him no longer performing a miracle to assert his messianic claim. That, of course, the demons are going to know who he is. There is no way to avoid that. Does this mean, I mean, would this mean that if a demon acknowledged that he is the Messiah, then he can no longer perform the miracle because it would assert his messianic identity. That's the point, is that Jesus followed through with casting out the demons, even though the demons recognized him as the Messiah, because if he did not do this, then the demons could claim that they had power over the Messiah to prevent him from casting demons out of people, because if he did so, then he would reveal that he was the Messiah, or he would be asserting his messianic identity he would be validating his messianic claim. And so I personally do not believe that he is violating what he said in Matthew chapter 12 when he spoke to the nation of Israel and told them that he would no longer perform any miracles to show them that he is the Messiah. 
I personally do not believe he is violating that only because the demons already knew, accepted, and acknowledged that he was the Messiah, and he did not want to give them the power and authority to prevent him from casting them out of people because of the concern that he might violate what he said in Matthew chapter 12. So this is why I believe this miracle is important, not just because it shows the foreshadowing that he would reach out to the Gentiles as he reached out to the Jews, that he would be willing to heal the Gentile as well as the Jew, that he did not come just to minister to the Jews alone, but that he could very well minister to the Gentiles if he wanted to. This certainly is a very important part of this miracle, but the other part of this miracle is an opportunity to show that he did not give the demons power over him because of his claim in Matthew chapter 12 that he would no longer perform any miracles to assert his messianic claim. This to me is of great significance when you consider this miracle and what happened. It's of great significance because it shows to me that he is going to proceed with the purpose for which he came. And he's not going to be put in a situation, he's not going to allow himself to be put in a situation where he is not going to perform any miracles for anyone, that he's not going to heal anyone. He is going to ensure that whatever he wants to do, he will be able to do it, even in the midst of the restrictions that he puts upon himself. When he returned to Israel, he still performed many miracles, he still healed many people. But the circumstances of those healings were very different. They were done for the purpose of meeting the personal needs of individuals. They were not directly done in order to validate his claim to be the Messiah. Now, continuing in Luke chapter 8, verse 33, it says, And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. Now, what's really interesting to me is to see that this is not just an example of deviled ham. There is a lot more here than just drowning a bunch of pigs. What this shows me is that the animals can have more sense than people. I mean, think about it for just a minute. There was this man who was possessed and tormented by these demons. He has no idea if he's ever going to be set free from these demons. Now, I'm not suggesting that it would be in his interest to commit suicide by saying that the pigs committed suicide and they had more sense than people. I'm only saying this in the context that the pigs recognized how horrible it was to be possessed by demons and decided that they did not even want to consider living that way, that they just decided to commit suicide. Now, I don't think that the demons wanted to go into the pigs for the purpose of killing the pigs. I don't think that that was their intent. I just believe that the evidence shows that this was a side effect of them going into the animals, that the animals were so unwilling to be possessed by demons that they would rather commit suicide. Now, again, I'm not saying that in order to encourage people to commit suicide, if they think they've been possessed by a demon, or even if they have been, we have no need for that. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the living God who will provide us with freedom and liberty. We have a God who has provided us with himself, He has provided us with salvation, with the opportunity to be healed of things like this, to be set free from the bondage that demons can perpetrate on individuals. And so there's no need for suicide. I don't want to give that impression. I'm only saying this to show that the animals did not tolerate the possession at all. Continuing in Luke chapter 8, verse 35, it says that the people went out to see what had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country, of the Gerasenes, and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Now think about this for a minute. They knew about the miracle that had been performed. They knew that the presence of the living God was there. Jesus showed up. He presented himself. He healed a man who they knew only the living God could do. Only the divine could set him free from the bondage that he was in. They knew that a miracle had occurred. But instead of asking him to stay there and perhaps heal others, perhaps set them free from their fear, instead of that, they asked him to leave. They said, hey, we don't want you here. We would rather be in bondage. We would rather our people be in bondage and be enslaved to demons than to have you here setting us free, especially when it's going to cost us something like all these pigs. They were more interested in their pigs than they were in the people. Imagine that. They were more interested in their pigs than they were the people. And so this tells you something about some people. Not all people, not all Gentiles, for example, and certainly not all Jews either. This was just an isolated circumstance in order to show the reality that not everyone is going to be interested in the Lord Jesus. The Jews rejected Jesus. He went to the Gentiles. The Gentiles rejected Jesus. Everyone rejected him. This was a wonderful opportunity to show and to demonstrate that the world in general was not interested in a Messiah, that that was not what they wanted. But it didn't matter. You understand? It did not matter. Even though the people of Israel as a whole rejected Jesus, and even though the Gentiles who he reached out to, for the most part, rejected Jesus, with the exception of a few, of course, this man who was healed, he went out into his city and he told about all the great things that Jesus had done for him. Some people embraced him, but the vast majority of people rejected him. But even though the people rejected Jesus for who he was, he still reached out to people. He still healed people. He came for a purpose And he accomplished the purpose for which he came. He has provided salvation to everyone. And even to this day, the world as a whole rejects Jesus. The world as a whole has no interest in the freedom that he has come to provide. But in the midst of that rejection, there will still be some who will turn to him for who he is. And those who do will have the opportunity to know him in a deep personal way. He will show himself to those who want to know him and to those who do not want to know him. They can live their lives. But at the appointed time, at the appointed time, there will be an appointed time. There will be a final judgment and it'll be over. The living God will no longer allow the people in this world to enjoy the world that he has created. He will take that away. He will say, I'm finished. I'm done. We are now done with this. A final judgment will be executed 
and the people who rejected him will experience the same punishment as the demons who rejected him as well. And then, of course, there will be a new beginning with those who have embraced their God for who he is. But I want you to understand this, and I want you to appreciate this, that back then the whole world rejected Jesus with the exception of a few. And today the whole world may reject Jesus with the exception of a few, but that will not stop him from reaching out to those few who do really want to know the living God. And for those who want to know him, he will reveal himself to them, and we who are willing to surrender to him who is, we will have a personal relationship with the living God of this universe, who will break any chains that might bind us, and he will provide us with a freedom that the world will never know. The man who was possessed by the demons may have had the power, may have had the strength, to be able to break any chains that people would have wrapped him with, to try to bind him and control him and keep him from being destructive. The people may have known him that way and may have looked at the bondage that he was in, and they certainly were not that afraid of him. They were afraid of him, yes, but they were not so afraid of him that they were willing to have him set free if it meant that it would cost them. If it cost them something, then they did not want him to be set free, that they would rather live in the fear. They would rather live in the fear of him who could have been destructive than to live in the fear of what Jesus might have done by setting someone else free. But the bondage, the chains that he breaks, that Jesus breaks, are chains that bind people in such a way that they cannot know their God. They cannot know the purpose for which he created them. They cannot have an understanding of the world they are a part of. The deepest needs that they have in their being will never be met. And because of these things, everyone lives in bondage. Everyone lives in chains. But the power of our God through the gift of the Messiah is such that anyone who receives him will have these chains broken as we turn to him for who he is. And he sets us all free from the inside, from the inside of our very being. This is the good news. Turn to him for who he is, and he will set you free. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. 